1: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week... Chris Power returns to Little Atoms to talk about his debut novel, A Lonely
1: Man.
2: Chris Power is the author of Mothers, which was longlisted for the Rathbone Folio Prize and shortlisted for the Edgehill Short Story Prize. And Chris's debut novel, A Lonely Man, we're going to be talking about today. Chris, welcome back to Little Atoms.
3: Thanks very much for having me, Neil. Uh, It's good to be here.
2: First of all, tell us how you would describe this
3: novel. I would describe this novel as really about the relationship between two men and about, about what it means to... To tell someone else's story, I guess. But both men are writers. One's a ghost writer who was working for an oligarch who um, has died, supposedly killed himself. But this writer, Patrick, uh, believes he was murdered, and he's he's fled from the UK to Berlin, which is where he meets Robert, who's really the main character. Although the the focus sort of shifts between them throughout the novel, but Robert is. Is an author who's who's sort of struggling to write a book that he's contracted to write, and then Patrick's story sort of falls in his lap, and so he goes about kind of uh, extracting it from him, albeit not not in the most um, straightforward or or honest manner. And and he sort of he sort of doesn't really believe the story Patrick's telling. So he believes that he worked for an oligarch and he believes that stuff, but he doesn't really believe that Patrick warrants being sort of. Hunted by the FSB or whoever these people might be that Patrick claims are pursuing him, um, and th- and that sort of doubt is part of what what powers the the book, I suppose. Uh,
2: I mean, I want to talk about who perhaps the main character is a bit later on as you said it switches between the two and there's there's a reason for that which which we'll sort of get on to but the book is is in the main told from the perspective of it's a third person narration but it's told from the perspective of um robert so-called robert Prow, who is a as you said he's a writer um formerly somebody that worked in advertising before he was a writer, formerly of the of the borough of Hackney, now living in Berlin. Um, he's a man that has a Swedish wife and a couple of young daughters and has written a critically acclaimed book of short
3: stories.
2: Tell us where this um, unlikely character comes from. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this fantastical creation. Yeah, I, I, as I can tell from your tone of voice, Neil, there is um, <laughs> your insinuating tone of voice. There is, um, yeah, there, there, I've certainly borrowed from um, from my own biography to an extent with Robert. Although I should say that I his his short story collection won a small prize, whereas mine absolutely did not. But that's <laughs> that's my right as a, uh, you know, I, I think that's called poetic license. Yeah, you know, I borrowed liberally from myself in some respects. Like I, I think there are certain aspects of Robert that, who knows, maybe they are also from me, but that, that I would be less <laughs> less um, happy about owning up to the, uh, the identification of. But at the same time, I think that it doesn't really matter that you know that's anything to do with me. Like I, I think I I'd, I'd distinguish this from autofiction in the sense that the aspects of, of Robert's life that are close to mine, that's not really the, the point. And it and it wouldn't matter if you didn't know that my wife was Swedish or however many kids I had or anything like that. So in some ways, it's, uh, in some ways, it's playful and in some ways like the name Robert Prowl was was sort of a nod to um to Roberto Bellano, who I was thinking about quite a lot when I was writing this book and he had Arthur Bellano was his um was his alter ego and sometimes he wrote about him in in a very in a way that was sort of close to autobiography and in other ways at other times in a way that very much wasn't so it was a sort of a nod to that. And, and in other ways, it was just uh, it was just practical, you know, because you, you use what's to hand as a writer. And and it was useful to me to build a character that way to take various strands or chunks from from reality and then, um, you know, fill the gaps up in between with fiction.
2: And obviously, this is, as you said, this is one of the themes of the book, the idea of sort of using real life in in fiction. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But I'm sort of fascinated by how it has a sort of wider resonance as well, in that you mentioned, or sorry, Robert, I say you. There you go. (laughs) It's it's confusing. It's so confusing. (laughs) Um, Robert mentioned in the narrative, a short story that appears in his fictional work of short stories Mm. uh, that sounds very much like a story from your collection, Mothers, which we talked about in some detail when we spoke about Mothers and i after reading the novel i went back and read that story but read it from the perspective that this is actually now
3: robert's story well that's uh, well first of all that, i mean you're a dream reader neil that's that's the <laughs> first uh, catnip for me yeah I, I mean i it's difficult for me to sort of map it all back or cuz I, I i wasn't it seems like a very knowing move to do that but it wasn't quite as knowing i don't think when when i actually did it like I think I think some of these decisions are sort of made instinctively rather than calculatedly but that said yes that story from Mothers is very autobiographical or in fact it's sort of it's it's a mixture of autobiography and fiction but at, at the end there's a very autobiographical section where I sort of step outside the bounds of the, of the story and it's almost like a like an essay kind of appended to the end where I talk about what I changed in the story, what was real, what was fictionalized, and why I did that, and so yes, that I guess that did speak to you know the strands that started to form in this book as I wrote it, albeit those those ideas about who can tell whose story and the distortions that are kind of inherent in fiction when you when you retell a quote unquote real story, they did sort of emerge along the way. they weren't necessarily there. Right from the start, they very much became what the book is about, but they weren't necessarily the subject of the book that I set out to write.
2: Let's talk a bit more about this idea of using, well, the sort of morality of using real life, real stories in fiction, mm. which is obviously what happens in this story. And yeah I mean obviously we've talked about the fact that you know this is not auto fiction. the The biographical details that you've used here for Robert are are a bit of fun. They're incidental to the actual plot of the story. But it is certainly auto fiction is obviously something that's fashionable and is now almost seen as more you know authentic. Than just making something up. obviously there are you know there are conversations had about whether or not it's appropriate for somebody to write about another culture that they don't necessarily belong to. But even beyond that, writers are sort of exhorted to write about you know, write what you know and all of that. But of course, along that comes, therefore, this line in the sand about whether or not it's ethical to write about real life and about other people, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it, it's a vexed question. And I think it's, but I, I think it's one that's present in all fiction, really. I mean, yeah, I think the question of cultural appropriation is is a separate one. I mean, you can they're related, but I think it's, it's a separate one. I think the more widespread question that does affect all fiction or the majority of fiction is, you know, your borrowings from real life, whether that's a family situation, or whether it's a a dynamic between you and someone else, or whether it's actually, you know, an anecdote someone told you or an experience someone had, or to talk about a specific example in the book, and really the sort of heart of that subject in the book, you know, something that you experience, but that other people experience as well. There's a um, funeral described in the book, or actually a a viewing, Uh, Robert goes back to London, because an old friend of his has killed himself and he um goes back for this viewing the friend is irish and he's going to be buried in ireland but his family are, are having this this viewing at a funeral home in london before they before they take the body back to ireland and that was you know that that has its basis in reality you know something i experienced and that i wanted to write about but i felt very conscious of the fact that you know this was a This was and is a traumatic event for, you know, for for his family and for all sorts of other people who were there. But primarily the family, you know, when I was writing about it, they were the people who I felt, you know, I had to tell that I was writing about it. And it was it is a problematic question because I was writing about it from, let's say, the perspective of my sort of surrogate character. I mean, we've talked about the various differences and similarities between myself and Robert but say for the perspective of you know from the perspective of this scene his experiences were were largely mine so in that sense I'm writing about something that that I have some sort of ownership over you know I wasn't putting myself into the head of this guy's mother or father or or whoever it might be which is which adds another layer of sort of ethical complicatedness I suppose
2: it's sort of, so that's the, also interesting, though, because Robert is a bit of an ass during this scene. It has to be fair.
3: Yeah, 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 he is. And and there there are well, in, in a sort of feeble defence, I'll say there are you know there are elements of, of truth and elements of fiction. But again, that that actually speaks directly to the to the issue, I think, or to the heart of the the complexity of it, because along the course of writing that scene you know, writing and rewriting many, many times over the two and a half years I was writing this book, you know, the scene became its own thing. You work maybe off notes that you took at the time from a diary and that's sort of close to to reality, but you are writing from the perspective of a character and there are other people there who don't exist, have been created for the novel. And along the way, you move away definitively and, and fundamentally from the real event the event that becomes real for you the author is you know the one that's that's in the text and over time that takes on its own reality like looking back now it takes quite an effort of concentration to actually separate the real memory of that of that event or the memory of that real event from the fictional version that lives in this book which I've spent so much time with and you know it's like the fictional version has colonized or or used up the real version to power itself you know and that's part of why I said it's a vexed question because you're you're sort of taking something and changing it you know if people who were there read that scene I imagine it'll be deeply strange because there are things they'll absolutely recognize and there are things that they absolutely won't you know there's something about probably even if I just tried to write it completely accurately they probably have to a degree the same reaction because everyone's got their own view on things and everyone experiences things slightly different and no written record is ever a completely accurate record of an event but in addition the scene as it lived within the wider framework of the book that became the most important thing to me not an accurate remembrance of that event which which turns it into a different thing, and which basically means that you are, as the author, using it. And some people would see that as exploitation to a degree. And I, th- I think those sorts of questions and those sorts of relationships to truth and reality are present in all sorts of books and in all sorts of, in all sorts of ways.
0: Ready to pop the question.
2: You're to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Chris Power and we're talking about his debut novel, A Lonely Man. Chris, let's talk about the the other main character, Patrick Unsworth. Tell us something about who he is and where he finds himself at the beginning of the novel.
3: So he's a ghostwriter. He's had a big commercial success uh, writing a unconventional footballer's memoir. A huge footballer and, and it's a sort of un, unusually sort of... I think nuanced and kind of interesting, supposed autobiography by this guy. And kind of off the back of that, an old friend of his who has had something of a sort of career in, in TV in Russia before coming back to the UK gets in touch with him because this guy's working for Sergei Vanyashin, this, this oligarch who's based in the UK, has fallen foul of Putin, had his various sort of assets frozen in Russia, including a, having a radio station taken away from him and a, and a newspaper. And so Patrick works for this guy. This guy wants to, Vanyashin wants to write, a well, it sort of shifts. He's, he's a bit mercurial, but he sort of wants a sort of memoir or a broadside against Putin. And he wants Patrick to write, you know, he wants it to be a, a big book in the West to sort of get back at Putin and so patrick has this i think two year or so um, quite frustrating experience with vanyashin as as he tells it where he's basically put on retainer but not really he get, he has a few meetings and it's, it becomes apparent vanyashin seems to have you know many things going on and he's someone who's who's maybe not not the most focused and puts lots of people on retainer in case he he decides that that's what he wants to do next and during the course of this he seems to be told that vanyashin has some dirt on Putin that, that's really gonna be explosive. Banyashin dies, Patrick is terrified and flees to Berlin to sort of work out his next move. He doesn't know where he's gonna go. And at the start of the book he's he's sort of he meets Robert uh or Robert meets him drunk in a bookstore uh, in berlin and um and sort of wants nothing more to do with him and then later on robert sees patrick getting beaten up outside another bar and um and goes to help him and then patrick insists on you know buying him dinner a few nights later to thank him and that's kind of where their where their relationship begins
2: the idea of ghostwriting we talked in the first half about you know this idea of, of writing about real life in fiction and, and the ethics or you know of, of, of doing that. Ghostwriting is is somewhat like a licensed version to do that and what happens in the in the story with this footballer you mentioned that Patrick basically writes this acclaimed autobiography for him but at the same time sort of stitches him up. Because it's not how it's clearly not how the footballer or his family expected it to turn out.
3: I would say that was a sort of um, happy development later, I think. It became once, (laughs) don't sound too mystical about it, once the book kind of told me what what it was about. You know, that, that idea of what he was doing with this footballer, Albie Cooper, the fact that when... Albie Cooper was given those interviews and was given the the book for approval as a there's a suggestion from Patrick that maybe he, him and his people just didn't read it. But there's also the idea that maybe when you see something in one form, it can become very different when it's actually out in the public forum and people are suddenly talking about it and, you know, drawing their own conclusions about it. I'm, I'm experiencing that. Now, you know, with people's responses to the book, it always feels, even if it's stuff you kind of expected people to talk about, it suddenly feels different when it's output coming in rather than, you know, you imagining it or you thinking about it yourself. You know, Patrick being a ghostwriter really began in the practicalities sake, really, or as a good way in, because I wanted to, I'd read a lot about you know, various deaths of Russians and people working with Russians, going back to Alexander Litvinenko and Boris Berezovsky. And, you know, the Skripal attempted assassination in Salisbury actually happened like the week I started writing this. But I'd I'd read this long form piece called From Russia With Blood that uh, Heidi Blake and a team of reporters wrote for um, BuzzFeed, published it in, I think, 2017. And... uh, there's a really fascinating report uh, or investigation about like 14 deaths that happened on, on British soil of um, yeah, Russians and British like lawyers, fixers, money men. And numerous sort of issues with, you know, the investigation of these deaths, under investigated, uh, contaminated crime scenes, people not taking pictures of crime scenes, deaths that seemed suspicious being very quickly ruled as, as suicides and not investigated. And it was a you know, I really was fascinated in writing something from within that world, but I didn't really want to write something from the perspective of someone who was complicit in that world. I think I really wanted someone who didn't really understand what was going on around them. It probably my my deep and abiding love for for ambiguity and uncertainty because it they seem to be how I experience life often. And so a ghostwriter really appealed to me as a way Into that world, you know, someone who could legitimately be in that world but not know everything about it. You know, they're they're kind of asking questions and struggling to understand it themselves, rather than having all the answers and knowing that they're that they're involved in a in a dodgy situation.
2: It's the perfect world for a a novel of this sort because you know I don't want to give away what happens, obviously, but for a lot of the book, Robert and, by extension, as the readers are unsure whether or not. You know, Patrick is delusional and paranoid or whether these things are really happening in the same way that, you know, we're not sure whether these people committed suicide or were murdered, you know, by the Russian security services. And of course, that whole thing, you know, we don't know whether they interfered with elections or not, whether they're hacking things. That's exactly out of, I can remember, you know, talking to Peter Pomerantsev, the writer, about this. You know, this is, this sort of confusion is exactly out of Putin's playbook. To sow the seeds of of paranoia and and discord in places, and it's like, did this thing happen? Did it not happen?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Russia is and has been, you know, for the last twenty years, a kind of it's produced meta narrative after meta narrative. You know, it throws out all these. I should say, you know, this current administration. I'm not talking about Russia generally, but they traffic in confusion of of stories. That's that's very much a a policy of theirs where it isn't your normal kind of like denial or single story that they're sticking to, they would throw out, you know, particularly under Surkov, who was Putin's old um, propaganda minister or, or minister of information, would throw out directly contradictory news stories about the same event. the idea being that you sort of flood the zone in the in American football terms, you just confuse the hell out of people by and, and which we've seen an extension of in the, the Trump administration learning, I think, from Putin to that, you know, if you can make people doubt truth, essentially, if everything's, you know, fake news, if you can plant doubt to the extent that you, you don't trust anything, then then that puts you in a good position to exploit that i think we saw that with brexit as well so i think yeah those questions feel very much very much of the moment so i think everyone's you know everyone was familiar with the ideas that politicians lie and and that that you are sold narratives that aren't necessarily true but the extremity of that i think has very much grown via putin and you know people aping that and also of course Social media, where you sort of get this huge flattening of the of the media landscape. So stories jostle alongside one another. And one might be from, I don't know, the New York Times. And one might be from, oh, what's his name? The oh, crazy right-wing guy, Alex... Um... Uh, yeah, um, uh, of oh course I can't think of his name either. I've actually been on a radio show with him in the past. You? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, probably best that you you blocked yeah, it. I, anyway, uh, yeah. Yeah. That idea that you can't, or you or you can be reading like a, a a news story in a in a respectable paper, and at the bottom you've still got those you know junk internet stories that are everywhere. Like you won't believe what happened to Demi Moore's face or whatever it is. That just seems to thin out the fabric of what was previously known to be true or false. You know, those distinctions for everyone have got a lot more um, murky and more quagmire-like over the last over the last few years.
2: Just to finish it off, then, and then I'll get you to to read a bit of the book, as if you would. Um, when we first meet, Robert as we said, he's he's basically blocked. He's he's got this contract to write a novel and he's he's really, really struggling to write the novel. And obviously Patrick coming along gives him the the impetus to to start it. And there are um there are I said earlier on that, you know, there was a sort of debate as to which was the main character because I, I love the way in which there are there are passages in the book that seem like they're being told from Patrick's perspective but then it sort of emerges that these are actually sections from Robert's novel in progress. I wanted to talk about how writing the novel was for you because obviously as I said, you'd, you'd written a book of short stories what was the change from from writing that into writing this novel?
3: The change was on one level microscopic in the I was just the same person struggling to find a good word to follow the the previous word. I found on a day-to-day basis, I found writing just as difficult as I always do. On another level, it was radically different because I was, you know, so doubtful about it for so long. I think with a short story, it might well take you years to finish it or to, to get it right or to make it good, but you know relatively quickly I mean within a within a matter of weeks whether there's something there if there's something there worth pursuing whether or not you actually succeed with it in the end but with this novel I just found it kind of really bedeviling that the sense that the whole thing could collapse at any point I mean I think for the first year pretty much of writing it I would just be struck every now and again almost like I was you know walking along the street and then suddenly this you know ravine just opened in front of me and just this sense of like what if it collapses like what if it's no good what if it's just stupid was really present like quite a lot and I just would put it out of my mind when I was actually you know at the laptop typing for a couple of hours a day that I was just writing and just concentrating on those those problems. That was a sort of blessed relief. But those other times when I was away, when I was doing other stuff, or when I was just trying to relax or whatever, yeah, I would just have these these yawning moments of doubt. And and that, and those persisted for, like I say, a very long time. I think actually looking at it now, it's not insignificant that everything that Robert doubts in the book are actually most of the elements that that I had the most doubt about because they were things that I, you know, hadn't written about before and things that I, you know, really wanted to, to get right and to make convincing and to kind of calibrate things correctly, you know, the way in which Robert sort of doubts what might be going on and making that really tangible and believable to the reader was something I, yeah, worried a huge amount over. That's a moment where, where reality and, and the fiction were definitely um, close together.
2: To finish it off then, could I get you to read us a bit? I'm
3: going to read a couple of pages from when uh, Robert has had dinner with Patrick and sort of learnt something about, uh, about Russia and has, uh, has been inspired to go and uh, do a bit more research. Back at the apartment, he spent most of the day online searching news stories and articles. Reading about the death of Sergei Vanyashin, a few details of the incident came back to him. As Patrick said, Van Yashen had been found hanging from an oak in the woods outside his Buckinghamshire estate nearly a year ago. Robert saw a photograph, a bare tree with a carpet of dark, dead leaves around it. There was a ribbon of red and white police tape running across the picture, twisting so the repeating words police in a cordon were upside down. Beyond the tape, a white canvas tent was pitched at one side of the tree. Vanyashin's body had been removed, but Robert assumed the branch he used was the lowest one, long and thick and maybe three metres above the ground. He used a belt, the news report said. Robert couldn't work out the logistics of it, especially given the shape Vanyashin was in around the time of his death, but perhaps he was more athletic than the short, stocky man in the newspaper pictures appeared to be. The obituaries described him as someone who came from nothing, a failed theatre director who discovered a talent for making deals in the chaotic period when 70 years of communism were swapped for instant free market capitalism. In 1987, he was driving a cab in Moscow. Ten years later, he had a property empire, one of Russia's biggest independent radio stations, and a small but apparently well-respected newspaper. Following link after link, the tabs on his browser growing thinner with each click, Robert toured the disordered and bloody landscape of Yeltsin and Putin's Russia. He read about how the oligarchs had written their own rules during Yeltsin's presidency and how, when Putin came to power and demanded their loyalty, most gave it to him. Those who didn't were either imprisoned or exiled. Some were dead now, including Vanyashin. A few months before him, Boris Berezovsky was found, also hanged, in the bathroom of an Ascot mansion. A year earlier, another Russian, Alexander Peripolichny, Robert remembered Patrick mentioning the name, had collapsed while jogging. And there were numerous other whistleblowers and critics who seemed to have been made to pay for their actions. Alexander Litvinenko, poisoned with radioactive tea while his alleged murderer was given immunity to prosecution by being made a Member of Parliament. Several journalists, including Anna Politkovskaya, who was shot dead outside her apartment. The opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, threatened and repeatedly arrested. Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was the richest man in Russia, when he was thrown in prison a decade before. Looking at these half-familiar events in sequence, a connected narrative running from the end of the Soviet system to now, the wars in Chechnya, Putin's rise, the apartment block bombings, the sieges at the Moscow Theatre and in Bezlan, the dismantling of Yukos, Litvinenko's killing, the invasion of Georgia and the current conflict in Ukraine, Robert saw modern Russia as an extreme case of state masterminded corruption and violence. If Patrick's story about being on the run was a fantasy, he had chosen a credible enough villain.
2: So I've been talking to Chris Power. We've been talking about his new novel, A Lonely Man, which is out in the UK from Faber. Chris, thank you so much for
3: taking the time to tell me about it. It was a pleasure, Neil. Thanks so much for having me.
2: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM, Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.